0: Hi, welcome to Nine to Thrive, a show about balancing work, community, and creativity. I'm your host, Janet McKenna-Lowry. In just a little while, we're going to talk with my guest, Ozzy Golshan, who is a public defender in Georgia. Usually, right at the top of the hour, I do a book review, and the books have to do with some loose affiliation with career, community, and creativity. But sometimes, and this is one of those weeks, there's something else off and around that's not strictly a book, but covers some of the same ground. And what I'm going to review today is the Get Back documentary by Peter Jackson about the Beatles. Spoiler alert, they break up. I was aware of this footage for my whole life, really. We had all the records when I was growing up. I had older brothers and sisters, and they were big Beatles fans, so we always had the things around. I knew they had broken up before I really came on the scene much, and kind of a background to my life, but I knew what Let It Be was, and I may have even seen it. I feel like I probably did. If not, I saw clips of it. It always felt very much like ancient history to me, although in fact, it was only, I think I was alive during it. I was just a tiny, tiny baby, But even, it just felt like within a couple of years, by the time the 80s came around, certainly, so 70s was all, was the sort of fallout from that. They did release a few early 70s records. Then it was all about their careers, and then suddenly John Lennon was dead, and it was the 80s. So, at that point, a lot of electronic music, a lot of Pop boppy music, and the Beatles were kind of turning into something vintage, and they certainly were in their seventies stuff, their late sixties stuff it kind of turned into something that hippies and sort of boomers liked and then turned their backs on as they became more mainstream as they became if you sort of follow the trajectory of baby boomers, a lot of them were very countercultural in the sixties. And then in the 70s, but then in the 80s, they all kind of became Wall Street bankers and accumulated money and the whole greed is good thing. So that's kind of the backdrop, a very loose and, you know, not strictly accurate backdrop of how I always saw this band, although enjoyable music, I always always liked them. I was a very casual fan, liked their stuff. I was never a huge fan of John Lennon. I thought that a lot of his stuff was, as a solo artist, was almost unlistenable. You know, not, this is probably still true. Didn't have a big appreciation for his work. I, it didn't speak to me. Paul, I liked fine. I didn't think his post-Beatles stuff was great either. George Harrison, I thought was great. And I loved his post-Beatles stuff. I especially loved the Traveling Wilburys. And then Ringo, who I always thought was kind of a clown, he always seemed goofy when he did post-Beatles stuff, it was kind of campy movies, and then he had a band, but I could not for the life of me name a song that I liked from him, and there was that legendary concert on the roof, which is what both Get Back and Let It Be are about, and these sort of accepted narratives about it all, which was that the heads of the band were John and Paul. They wrote all the songs except for a couple, that George wasn't really a songwriter, which is so interesting because afterwards his work was really good, that Ringo was just the drummer, that their manager had died, that was a thing, kind of knew about that, and that Yoko broke up the band. That's that's the main main kind of narrative. I did hear sometimes that Paul... Was responsible because he was so bossy, and that the guys didn't get along anymore, and that bands break up. But usually, it was Yoko broke up the band, and I wasn't. I I had watched some of the footage, sort of early Let It Be stuff, and it was h- hard to watch. It looked really old. It looked really grainy. People smoked a lot, so I felt like I was looking through a haze. I didn't have a lot of patience with it. Couldn't really hear stuff well, so. Here's the really interesting thing about this documentary. I was like, oh, that's kind of nice. You know, the two of them are still alive, kind of a look back. And Peter Jackson is so great at so much, so maybe that's interesting. And then a bunch of people that I really like were telling me, oh, it's great. It's great. It's great. And then I got really, really hooked on this documentary. So from a technical standpoint, Jackson has made all this footage that the original Let It Be documentarians had but didn't or couldn't or wouldn't use and cleaned it up and it's, it's kind of shocking in a weird sort of way to see people smoking, which they always did, and then the smoke vanishes. It does not affect the air around them in this room even as all of them are smoking even as like the original footage that you would look at you could see a haze of of smog in every room one guy the documentarian guy himself is chomping on a massive cigar the, the circumference of a baby's arm and even that doesn't affect the quality the visual quality and what's interesting to me about that is that having cleaned up the visuals their clothes don't look hopelessly outdated to me anymore, really. I, they kind of do. There's some things about like, what they're wearing, whatever. But mostly, they're just these real colors of real clothes. And they don't look sort of fakey, old-fashioned, vintagey anymore. They look sort of like something friends of yours might wear at a casual get-together. So that's really interesting. Massively cleaned up. But the really extraordinary thing he did was clean up the sound and isolate it. So now you can hear different conversations. You can hear different instruments. They remixed everything. And so there's this audible, auditory experience watching this documentary of the last time the Beatles, who are, you know, a Superstar band, if they're not still, then for quite a while they were the most famous band in the world. but being able to be sort of a fly on the wall and there is a weird awareness because they interact a lot with the director of the original documentary. his name's Michael Lindsey Hogg, the cigar chomping guy. They interact with him a lot, so there's an awareness that our fly on the wall point of view is also really stressing out the members of the band. We're supposed to always pretend in documentary style things that the cameras don't exist. We're supposed to pretend when we see the Kardashians that there's not a wall of working camera people, sound people, people holding coffee for them that we can't see because we are effectively standing with them when the camera's pointing at these people having an argument in their living room, as if that was natural. So some people have said that this documentary is sort of the beginning of reality TV, and I think that's true, and I think that comes out in it. So the reason why I wanted to talk about this in the context of career, community, and creativity is how those three elements are the running threads through the eight hours it is a surprisingly touching gift to be able to see what a working band looks like when it's working not just when it's performing when it's working so these people this is their job this is their career this is the career they've had since they were 16 and 17 years old and at this point in the documentary they are 10 to 12 years older than that and they have been doing a version of this since they were barely out of childhood and in their early days they worked incredibly closely with one another they they worked and lived and performed. So you hear about the performances, kind of the timeline of the Beatles, sort of a legendary thing. They got together in high school and then they started to have gigs and they started to play. What is not quite as, I don't know, understood perhaps, or or maybe emphasized is the way in which they were together twenty four seven, three sixty five, 365. For those first years, they went to Germany they traveled all over the UK and then finally they came to the US. They slept in the same bedrooms. For a long time in Germany, there were two bunk beds. They performed on stage for, I don't know, eight or 12 or 16 hour shifts day after day after day. That's what they did. The part we don't see, because there's no footage of it, is the way in which the rest of the time they wrote songs. They wrote songs in the van when they went place to place. They wrote songs on the plane when they talked to each other. They wrote songs while they waited for their sound checks. They wrote songs and taught them to each other all day long every day. And it is a sort of interesting phenomenon that John and Paul happen to be extraordinarily talented songwriters. And there's no denying that. All four extraordinarily good musicians. Although, also, if you're an average musician and you live like that for several years, you do get better, you get much, much better. So, but they were kind of the sum beyond their parts. And I don't think it's fair to talk about the Beatles as composers and songwriters without saying that they dipped pretty heavily into existing music. In Germany, they, they performed at venues that they shared with other performers. That's how they met Billy Preston, who played piano on their final album. They met him because he was one of the backup pianists for Little Richard. It is important to understand that these were also white boys who loved the blues. And like a lot of '60s, late 50s and through the 60s artists, they lifted liberally from black creators without crediting them. There is an aspect of this creativity that just has to do with fertile ground that when there is a lot growing and you hear a lot you can take those ingredients and you can cook something new. Equally, and I don't think there was an understanding, I think these were young boys I don't think the grown-ups involved had the distance or the ethics to be able to say you gotta credit and pay credit and pay credit and pay so it is important to know this and they've had several lawsuits against them for bits of songs that they took or sped up or slowed down from other creators so that's a note on the creativity piece but that the documentary is so much fun to watch because the hours they were trying to do 14 songs in something like 14 days. Something absurd. And they hadn't been living together. In fact, they hadn't even been performing together for several years. Certainly hadn't been living together for longer than that. So they got together in the studio to do this documentary, which was supposed to be a TV show and a movie, and a concert and an album. Pretty ambitious. And watching them spend their days, throwing out bits, and seeing what might work, seeing what someone else catches, and then going from there is pretty fascinating. The days of a working band, of a, of a working compositional band. Also interesting because this came after Sgt. Pepper's, which was a real concept album in which they felt, or at least they talk about it, as though they really had a shared vision for something new and revolutionary which in fact Sgt. Pepper's is. So there's some interesting things I just want to observe about this this moment for them. When you've done something extraordinary, it is weird to go back and be told you have to do it again. Capture that lightning in a bottle again. I just recently found out that in those later years, John Lennon was Actually terrified of being on stage and that had to do with the same thing increasingly If you screw up now, you're like a superstar screwing up. So you're an even bigger loser Than when you were just one of 20 bands in Germany screwing around messing up getting the chords wrong getting the words wrong the standards to which we hold creative people after they've achieved something are insane. And now I'm going to backtrack on that because it immediately occurred to me, we hold athletes in these same unbelievably unsustainable, unattainable standards, which is why there was all that massive outcry recently when Serena Williams wanted to preserve her health and said she wasn't going to compete in some tournaments that she had previously thought she was going to compete. And people came out and publicly insulted and attacked her for something that is a fully reasonable stance to take. And how much worse would they have come out and attacked her if she had played and played injured or played badly? When we look at the Olympics, a lot of times we only really count the gold medals. The silver medalist is better than everyone else in the world except one. I have heard silver medalists referred to as first loser, which honestly says an awful lot more about the person who's saying it, who, by the way, has never won a gold or a silver medal, than it does about the person they're talking about. I have a friend who was in a band that was successful in the early 90s. And they did a trajectory where their first album was good and got the attention of people. Their second album was a surprise hit. And when the third album wasn't a continuation of or or an improvement on that excellence, they were trashed by people. There's a documentary of this band where Bob Geldorf is just being awful about the failure of this band in its third album. These are still, these are, these were young men who were still, I think they were barely 20, 21 maybe at this point. Not too different in terms of age from the Beatles. Why can't they fail? Why can't we be okay with some terrible albums from good people? Why can't it, why can't, now that we know that they do good work, why do we have to kill them for more good work? Like they're some kind of robot farm animal. This isn't how creativity works. Creativity is messy. And a lot of creativity is on the floor. It doesn't work out. It doesn't come, come together and gel. And you won't get the good ones if you can't have the garbage. That's what creativity looks like. So watching this working band try to figure out a groove after these different pressures, pressures of excellent pressures of what well, we were really revolutionary And the last album. We also haven't seen each other much in the last couple of years, they were no longer performing live. And the other thing that I found to be very affecting came quite early in the documentary. It came in the first hour or so where they're talking about feeling a little disorganized. They're talking about feeling, at odds with each other and a lot of this has to do with Paul trying to be a leader. He's a perfectionist which is always a position of insecurity and reasonably enough and he comes in and is trying to tell everybody how he sees everything should go. He's pretty much the generating energy in this and the reason for that is that John is largely high for a lot of this. He was on heroin and also was not interested in doing this really anymore. It, the joy is out of it. George, they write off all the time. They treat him like a subordinate, which in some ways he was 12 years ago, but John and Paul refused to acknowledge how exceptional he became, like he was allowed to screw up and catch up. And Ringo, Ringo surprised me in this in this whole documentary, I was surprised by no one more than Ringo. Ringo is the one that showed up to work on time, ready to work, every single day. He had no drama. Now I know that in other times where they got together, I think I don't know if it was Yellow Submarine or Sergeant Peppers, there was an earlier Record where he got mad at people and walked off, but that is not in evidence here at all. He is unbelievably cooperative He just jumps in and starts working on stuff people come over and ask him to do things differently He tries something else does something else He just isn't he's not particularly triggered George is clearly triggered By a lot of his treatment from John and Paul and he does walk off at one point point and quits the band, and they persuade him to come back. But Ringo is kind. He's just deeply kind. I had no idea, honestly. I had, I just did not know this level of his personality. And in some ways, even as I say it, I also feel like I probably have no business knowing. Because watching this documentary is also one of the lowest points of these four people's lives. These four people who grew as closest brothers and this band is breaking up, unbelievably creative, successful band. And, and here's the thing that I thought I, I really, I really kept returning to this team was in mourning. Brian Epstein was their manager and he had died very recently of an overdose. And that is why Paul keeps taking the boss role. But also saying a, a very actually a very Paul was very self-aware. He wasn't so self-aware that he changed his behavior. But he was able to name his behavior, and surprisingly, sometimes John was too. But Paul says Mr. Epstein used to do this, and without him, I feel like I have to. Nobody wants him to do it. It pulls him out of being a peer and pushes him into being a manager, which he's not comfortable being, and no one else wants him to be. That's number one. And it was a team dynamic, and I thought this is really illustrative for people who are creating teams, particularly teams that need to do some creative work. First, tolerate the mess, but secondly, find out if there are some overwhelming feelings or an event has occurred. I felt like these people who are still, quite honestly, they're they're barely in their late 20s, that's still quite young, that's not child, but they're early in their lives, they all seem to feel like they're old men. And at the end of their lives, they have the energy of people who are depleted, but they are also grieving. And I found it sad that they did not have the support they needed to be able to not just grieve the loss of their manager, but really, first of all, talk about what that meant to them and what the loss meant but also get very clear on what the loss meant for the band and how to find someone who could step into that role effectively because people who don't process trauma are often not the greatest judges of what to do about it. They self-medicate. That's very self-destructive, but it is understandable. They also go searching for answers but without having that support of processing the trauma the answers are going to create more problems answers for this band included john finding managers that didn't work out properly partly because he wasn't a great judge of character and he wasn't a great judge of character because he was in a lot of pain and a lot of unprocessed pain and he was self-medicating heavily Paul wanted his in-laws to be managers and didn't, I mean, they're close by and I guess he trusted them, but a whole group has to be sort of on board for that. George felt like he was never listened to because in fact he wasn't and really had his foot out the door and Ringo said, I love being in a band and I love being in this band and I'd love for it to stay together. and. John brought with him Yoko. She's a kind of interesting person. I do not enjoy any of her music, but her role there during this documentary, as Paul jokes around, how awful will it be if they say that we broke up just because Yoko sat on an amp? That is exactly the legend that started. But in fact, if you watch this documentary, Yoko sits quietly harming no one the entire time George has his guru sitting in the back too nobody says the guru broke up the band but I would suggest that Yoko who is also self-medicating heavily with John is part of the problem of unprocessed emotions and and lack of actual support because the way in which she sat with John while not distracting Exactly. Definitely disrupted the dynamic of the band, but equally he seemed to need her in very much the way a child needs a beloved blankie. They are touching or nearly touching all the time. It's it's a actually really interesting glimpse of a of what codependency means. They seem to be unable to be more than a few feet from one another for the entire duration of this filming. And that is not particularly healthy. Swapping in a person's for your self medication, swapping in drugs for your self medication, it really felt like like there's a there's a meme that says, you know, men will do Anything to avoid therapy and there was the version of it, which is men will break up the greatest band ever To avoid having therapy and I felt like and granted psychotherapy was not as Accepted as it is today But it is a sad thing to see the need for it So much and if not formal therapy, then certainly some kind of support and guidance by somebody empathetic who doesn't have a horse in this race who could perhaps have stepped in and allowed these guys to break up more gracefully, less sadly, or to do more of their own work together. There is a an interview with Peter Jackson where he said he did find some audio between George and John that he cleaned up. And they're chatting. Paul is not there. Although I bet Ringo is. And they say, you know what would be great would be to go and make solo albums, but come back and do the Beatles on a regular basis. And the other one said, yeah, I'd like that. That would be really fun. And that Jackson had asked McCartney if he knew that, would things have been different? And he got very teary and said that he thought so, yes. And honestly, there is this aspect of Save the Band and having that blossom of creativity is incredibly attractive and incredibly desirable. But mostly, it was so good to see eight hours of this band mostly having fun and creating together. And it feels sad that they could not continue to have fun and create and share with us. But I think it's also important to see some lessons about working together and how we work together. And if we repress things, if we have big sads and big feelings and we get zero support for them and have to jump back into our most comfortable but damaging states. So, you know, George has to just buckle down and do what he's told. Or John has to come up with this song right away or... Paul has to be so perfectionist that he's actually in a state of agitation all the time. That feels sad and unnecessary. So I think it would be really interesting to watch that documentary with an eye on how do we create together? How could we create better? I think that for a long time, the Beatles brought their best selves together and created more than what they were. And it's always sad to see that end. It's especially sad to see that end in a way that doesn't feel graceful. It feels a little empty. I am glad to see so much joy in the creation and so much joy of them being together because that was never part of the narrative before. But it is sad that that was how things ended between four people who had been extraordinarily creative together. you're just joining us, you're listening to Working 9 to Thrive, a show about work, creativity, and community. Next up, part one of our conversation with guest, Ozzy Golshan. With me today is Ozzy Golshan, a public defender in Georgia. Welcome to the show, Ozzy. Thanks for being on. Thank you, Janet. So the the general gist of this, the sort of shape of it is a kind of loose discussion about career, creativity and community. And I weight them all the same. So I don't, I don't like direct which one you start with. Mm -hmm. But uh, which one would you like to start with? Oh, we can start with career. That's fine. (laughs) Okay. So uh, how did you get to become a public defender? What interested you about that work?
1: Um, Well, I went to law school um, about five years after I finished undergrad thinking that I wanted to do something like work for the ACLU Um, and then I started law school and got very, very interested in criminal law and then started doing the criminal defense clinic at the school that I went to, um, which was really strong and I don't know I just Really liked the clients and really um, started enjoying it as a way to fight for people. And it, criminal also does not have the piles of paperwork leading up to trial that civil does, which was something I was unaware of about civil practice until I went to law school. Yeah. And in fact, I'm unaware
0: of it too. What's the difference between what ACLU does and what you do?
1: So, I, you know, I can't speak specifically to the ACLU, but oh. a lot of civil litigation, um, there is this whole extended discovery process where, you know, different parties send each other things, they do requests for additional documentation, and then there's also this whole process where in in the civil world, they do a lot of what's called depositions, oh. which is basically they bring in people who would be witnesses, and and basically do recorded, kind of recorded what you would do in a trial where you are doing some sort of either direct or cross-examination of them, but all of that happens in advance, um, whereas the, you know, and then the case may or may not go to trial, it may settle, you know, just depending on what it is, mm-hmm. um, whereas in criminal world, we really are There is still a lot of discovery as in all of the evidence and information that from the defense side, the state has to give us in order to actually give us basically meet our clients due process rights, because you can't just accuse someone of something and then bring them into court and surprise them with it at Hmm. trial. Okay. But there is just much more in court, steps along the way when it comes to criminal practice. You're, you're in there right off the bat if somebody's still in custody doing a probable cause hearing, doing hearings for bonds. Um, if there's some sort of issue where you think there was a constitutional violation, like maybe there was a search that was unauthorized or whether there was a you know, a statement that was taken that was illegal because it you know, violated somebody's Fifth Amendment rights, All of those become motions where you file it, but then you go in and you argue it in court. And then we actually do have, I mean, there's multiple cases in criminal court that do go to trial and you are going in front of a jury and doing all of that. And we very rarely do depositions. I think I've only twice in the entire nine years I've been doing this, done depositions or things like that. And they've just been because alleged victims in cases were very elderly and so the state had filed a motion to do a deposition to preserve their testimony. But we are much more, I don't know, moving in, in trial and in those pretrial court proceedings um, in real time, as opposed to a huge lead up of documentation that, that can take up a whole lot of months the way that you can have in some civil cases.
0: Interesting. What's, so what do you find satisfying about this work?
1: I really like my clients. I, you know, I mean, we all know, and we, we have all experienced things in our own lives and seen in the lives of others where, you know, you can really be dealt a hard hand in life. Mm-hmm. But as far as folks who, how do I say this? Like what, when someone is dealt the hand of, for example, You know, being multi multiple generations who have been in poverty. And you know, I know I know you know that it is very, very hard to pull yourself out of poverty in this country, even though we pretend, you know, that it's something that's very easy and you can just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and all of those cliches. But when you do something where where you're born into that, but then you're also born into a situation where, for example, your parent has to be working multiple jobs. You, you know, are experiencing potentially a lot of trauma, um, sometimes just because of what you are witnessing in in the community that you're in, um, because, you know, poverty does lead to a lot of things like substance abuse as people try to cope. I mean, there's a lot of yeah. substance abuse in affluent populations as well. It's just not as criminalized. Yeah. Then you've also got, you know, a situation where somebody is seeing this huge police presence in their neighborhood and that, and, you know, arresting people that they love for using substances. And, you know, in the meantime, things like alcohol are fully legal. And I should say Georgia is not a legal marijuana state. Mm. So that becomes like the smell of marijuana becomes this big excuse for harassing people. Mm. And just basically when someone gets dealt that kind of hand where you are by the time you are 17, 18, 19 years old, you are dealing with a history where you have seen violence, where you have had really negative interactions with police, where you or those who you love developed a drug addiction um, just because you are trying to deal with, with the levels of stress that all of this stuff has brought upon you and you're just trying to make it. Just all of these things you know you it's it's almost a matter of time if you get dealt that hand before you end up in handcuffs over something that is a crime of poverty or a drug addiction or something like that that we've chosen to criminalize and it is there is something really satisfying to me about meeting with my clients who are in that situation and being able to talk to them and and just share that kind of understanding of this all doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense and a lot of what you are dealing with right now is not necessarily stuff that has been within your control and some of these laws are arbitrary and to be and to be able to take that sort of relationship you build with somebody and and to be able to do it in a not the reason i say you know having that connection where you acknowledge that some of these laws don't make sense some of these situations are beyond your control is that there's not this patronizing well, you have to make better choices right. because that's just not reality for a lot of folks.
0: You must and, be, you must be yeah. the first interaction for a lot of people of not being gaslit.
1: Yeah, that's a really good, concise way to put what I was trying to get no, out. I, it, no yeah, I, I think it's just sort of my
0: observation of it. I, yeah. I don't think it's uh, I think it's just my response to what you were saying because I think it's important to say exactly how you're doing that. But it it occurred to me that when you are like fish, can't see water, Mm -hmm. you are here. You are in the system for what you're being told are your bad choices. Right. And it must be such a relief's the wrong word, but a lifting of some of the burden to have somebody come to you. Who's sort of part, part of the system in a way and say, that is not the only way to see this and, and yeah yeah that's yeah. that's like
1: right there is service <laughs> yeah and it's it is also i mean the reason that it's satisfying for me to have that interaction and then to take all of that with the client and basically go to that and like fight for somebody is That These are also things that even if I wanted to, I couldn't help seeing because I'm always that kind of person, you know, Hampshire college graduate, we've always got to be aware of the big picture and everything that's happening and all of the structural inequities. And to see that stuff and to be in courtrooms or in rooms where people pretend that it doesn't exist, just like you said, is probably not as frustrating to me as my clients because I'm fortunate enough to not be incarcerated Mm. as a consequence, but it's incredibly frustrating to me too. So being able to like have that connection with my client where we're both there saying, this is ridiculous. You know, this is not what this is. And, And really trying to fight for somebody's right to actually be treated like a human being and live their life if they're not hurting anybody for example right that's it it makes me also feel like i'm doing something to fight the injustice or so much of the injustice that's in the world
0: yeah there's a piece in that about just dignity like yeah absolutely everybody has a right to it
1: and right
0: it's 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 interesting how it's not a it's not a word that gets talked about all that much And what's interesting to me hearing you say this is how compassionate it is and how uh, stereotypically that is not the word one associates when one hears lawyer.
1: Janet, there's a reason that when people ask me just on the street, you know, what do you do for a living? I don't even say lawyer. I just jump right to public defender because I don't even want to see the glaze over the, the eyes and, oh, what kind of law firm do you practice? No, 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 that's not what I do. No, no. <laughs> Was there ever a temptation to do that
0: or to like serve out a couple of years doing that and, you know, build up money
1: so that you could then go do public service? No, Um, I I very purposely, I spent two years working at a large law firm before law school, and it was business immigration. So it was nothing that felt bad to me to be doing in any way. It was just not, I mean, the the, uh, multinational managers are always going to have somebody to do their visas. They didn't need me in quite the same way that the clients do. But there was nothing that felt bad about that. So it was a decent experience, but doing that for two years just was when I decided that, you know, I am going to go to the flagship state university where all of my loans, where I, you know, I'm able to get some scholarship money and then all of my loans, because the tuition is low, were able to be federal loans, which Mm. means I've been able to do this since I basically a few months after I got sworn into the bar because I'm able to take advantage of the public interest loan forgiveness Mm. program, which what is wild is I just have about a year left um, until, fingers crossed, um, I I get to reap the benefits of that. But I just, I, I think I very purposely structured my education and the debt that it would carry to be something to where I wouldn't have to go into, go into a situation where I was doing work that I felt bad about. Because, I mean, let's, let's be honest, it's not that large law firms don't do anything that is pro bono or helping folks, but it's hard to get around the fact that many, many Things that the lawyers at large law firms are doing is really helping people and companies who have a lot of power preserve that power, and right. that would be a hard thing for me to swallow. I'm not sure what the point of law school for me would have been because i I don't have any great love of the law. I mean, it's fine, <laughs> but I see it more. As, it's, I see That's it as fine. a I mean, it is, I see the law, like lawyering and the law are tools for me of being able to fight for people and try to help people. And it is incredible how much power it is just to even be able to read some of these dense legal documents right? that are made inaccessible. But I, it's, it was not for any great love of the law or legal discipline that I went to law school it was for, for fighting for people. So it just, I just wouldn't have gone if, mm. if it was going to be something where I ended up in that corporate law situation. Mm. And do you have, do you come from a family that were, were lawyers or in, <laughs> just out of curiosity? No, <laughs> yeah. what's funny though, is that several of my cousins are also lawyers. So oh. it's been a very funny thing. No, I remember having a moment When I was actually submitting in my last year of law school, part of what you have to do before you even can get signed up to take the bar exam in Georgia and in most states is you have to submit this long, intensive application with documentation for what they call character and fitness okay. and and it just I mean it's just all the things that you would think of as far as you know have you ever been arrested how many traffic tickets have you gotten have you ever <laughs> gone to collections I mean just things that are wild but I remember having this moment where I I had an emotional oh my gosh I didn't know any lawyers growing up. How could I possibly be a lawyer? I don't even know what that looks like. And then the best part of this, um, and, and I will say I'm, I am someone who can separate the art from the artist as far as enjoying the art while not necessarily agreeing with the artist, but I had this moment where what comforted me was, oh, it's okay. Claire Huxtable on the Cosby show was an attorney. Okay. I'm good. I'm oh good. Oh my God. <laughs> well, representation matters, doesn't it? <laughs> it is just, it was just funny, but no, my mom, I um, grew up with single mom, large extended family. My mom is, is a like bookkeeper works in medical administration, medical mm. billing kind of stuff. That's what she did her whole my whole childhood basically and I have aunts and uncles who are more affluent who have you know for example a couple of them have PhDs one is an MD but nobody nobody in law they were all in the sciences Mm. so yeah Claire Huxtable that's my that's my role model
0: well yeah I mean she was a female and she had a family I mean I remember I was close with some elderly women who were doctors, who were all told you will have to choose if you become a professional woman, Mm. you you will not have children Mm -hmm. and vice versa. Yeah, no. So Huxtable, even though it sort of sounds funny, she's kind of one of those early ish public faces to actually navigating that life. That's kind of cool.
1: Yeah. Well, and, you know, she's also a woman of color, which, really? I mean, I, I am not black. We're not the same race. I'm I'm Middle Eastern for your listeners. You can't see me, Um, <laughs> but it, it also just skips over that other hurdle of sure. I could think of Susan Sarandon and the client, but then I have a right. whole other, but those are white people kind of hurdle. So it was, it was just a very funny thing that my brain
0: did. <laughs> yeah, no, I really think it's, I, I think representation is huge. And especially as you were saying. If you don't have it within your family, if you literally never see it, there's this Mm -hmm. whole thing about education where you can't, you really can't learn something completely new cold. You have to have something before it that you can hook onto. Absolutely. So that's that same jump. If, if you've never met a female doctor and cannot conceive of it Mm -hmm. at all, you have zero to hook it onto. The jump is pretty impossible to make, and the yeah. minute you start seeing photos of that, the minute you start seeing media representation, the mean the minute you meet one, I mean, it's huge. Yeah, absolutely. So I love that. That's I love that. That's <laughs> and and her her sins are
1: not her television husbands. That's the lesson there. <laughs> no, and and I also have this sort of joke with my husband that there's. There are memes of Claire Huxtable when she's about to go into one of her rants when somebody in the family has said something really unfortunate and she's about to set them straight (laughs) that my husband is like, oh, oh, that's, that's you. I know that look. I'm (laughs) I'm about to get a lecture when I see that look. (laughs) (laughs) And, And
0: what led, so you talked about Hampshire College and
1: what led to Georgia? What drew you there? Oh my gosh. I thought I was going to be in Atlanta for one year. And that was, <laughs> let's see, it's now the end of 2021. And I moved here in the middle of 2007. So wow, yeah, so I thought um, I, I had made the decision that I was going to apply to law school after I had spent some time both working in and, and doing, you know, other things with nonprofits and I realized that was not the direction that I wanted to go. But you know, the thing about law school or any grad program is you then have to spend basically a year cycle applying. Right. And so I figured Atlanta was a place that I had traveled to several different times for different reasons. I have family, actually my great aunt and uncle there, my aunt by marriage's parents, which is complete coincidence <laughs> lived in Atlanta at the time. They're still in Georgia, just a little bit farther out. So I've been down to see them. I've been to um, you know, various conferences in the nonprofit sector because anything set in the South was often in Atlanta. And I just always really liked it. It was one mm. of those places where it just felt good to me. And it's things that now that I live here, I realize is like very specific aspects of the culture or the cultures, uh, because there's definitely many cultures of Atlanta, which is part of what I love love about it. But I just figured I would like to try it. And I thought I would be coming back up to the Northeast, (laughs) where I had spent about seven years living in Western Mass, not necessarily back to Western Mass, but just somewhere in the you know, New York, New England, just general area. And I had been here for, I don't know, something like seven or eight months and just realized, and I had applied to these Northern schools and just decided that I did not want to leave. And it kind of went, wow. yeah, it kind of went, I didn't want to leave the South. And then it became, I didn't want to leave Georgia. And then it became, I really didn't want to leave too far from Atlanta I ended up at the University of Georgia which is in Athens which is about an hour and a half away but that's kind of like being from Boston and going to UMass Amherst yeah okay you know it's not it's actually even a little bit closer but I just in all of these unexpected ways which I guess shouldn't have been unexpected because anytime when you visit a place you just feel that good in it It's, Mm. it should be expected that you're going to like it if you move here. (laughs) I don't know, but, but I just, in all these unexpected ways, I just kind of made a life and, and in other ways, a life fell into place for me. I also met my husband, but I do like to remind him that (laughs) I met him about two months after I had decided I didn't want to leave. And so I still like to remind him, I still celebrate my atlanta anniversary every year, which is August 1st, the day I showed up in Atlanta. And I like to remind my husband that I committed to Atlanta before I committed to him. <laughs> now, he shouldn't get any ideas about, you know, I stayed here just for you. I, you know, I'm, You know, of course, obviously he was a factor, but it, it was something he's, that was in the works previous he's to that atlanta adjacent he's atlanta adjacent. He, he's a pro in the column of atlanta a big <laughs> pro but but still a pro in the column of atlanta yeah
0: yeah i i don't know that i've ever heard of a city like spoken of this way i think it's really neat no. especially from somebody who like the i have traveled lim, in a limited way in the south mostly as a child mm-hmm. and granted with paranoid parents but <laughs> uh, you know, I I found I found the whole like crossing and from as Northerners into the South being, you know, really like scary. Like these are gonna be the Dukes of Hazard people. Or these are, you know what I mean? Like like oh, you know, there there's there. It's a, a sort of almost I don't know. It's funny to talk to you about this, but lawlessness. Like mm-hmm. we could get pulled over, and because we have these Northern accents. They're going to hate us or they're going to assume we're racist like they are. And that, like, we'll just get into so much trouble on this trip. Mm-hmm. We drove down to Florida in like 1975. There and back. And just, uh, there was a point where we got into like a minor car accident. And I think my sister and I were like hyperventilating in the back seat about how we would <laughs> never be seen again because we were Yankees. And we had like, we were like in this very small southern
1: town with the police and we were just like petrified (laughs) oh i i mean listen i i cannot i mean 1975 was seven years before i was born Yeah, yeah no 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 but 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 also i mean many years before i moved down here and and so i can't speak to i mean i know certainly 1960s stuff yeah. is yeah. not something i necessarily would have wanted to be in with brown skin. Mm. Just as a whole depending on, you know, where that kind of thing. So i i get i get that. I think that there are a lot of ways in which there's a lot of ways in which the south have, has not changed, but there are a lot of ways in which it has. And Atlanta, i think from the beginning has had a lot of problems. I don't want to say it's any sort of idyllic and and that old slogan, the city too busy to hate is very Mm -hmm. aspirational (laughs) and that's lovely, but just does not match up with when you read up on what was happening on the ground when you know school desegregation and housing desegregation and all that was happening? Well,
0: honestly, Boston too. So where we got Ooh. off on yeah. this, I don't know. Right? We never, Ooh. we never thought a second thought about going in and seeing <laughs> Paul Revere's house, but there we were, hyperventilating in the yes. station
1: wagon. <laughs> no, now <laughs> that's that's fair. Boston, wow, yeah, that's <laughs> that's got quite a history as well, but. But also, I mean, Georgia has changed. And even before this last round of elections, where the entire country, including the New York Times, finally accepted this right. after people had been saying this for 10, 15 years that this was happening. But it's it's just it's just a really Atlanta in particular, even though I probably outside of atlanta it is just a very unique and interesting place and it is actually very very welcoming Mm. i mean to someone like me it's it's a you know minority majority city it's predominantly african-american and that even though i will unless i go to dearborn michigan for example where there is like a huge population of middle eastern and arab american folks Mm. i'm never gonna really be in the majority of a city like within my specific ethnicity but I will tell you how much I appreciate being able to do something silly like go to you know I don't know buy makeup in my sweats and not get and not get the look of uh, like which is a look I've gotten in in other the look up and down and you know is is often not not in this situation but it's the same look that can be accompanied by other times when people have said delightful things like go back to mexico to me which is just oh God. where do you even like i i don't even know where to start with that <laughs> but i just cannot say how much i appreciate the, dude, i know dude, living 30, in a thousand
0: miles off but nice well, I, just, I mean
1: it's like where do you start because you're like and that's not even the point right, right? Yeah. like that's not even what matters here but it just highlights the ignorance of this statement yeah But I can't say how much I appreciate just being in a city of, you know, when I walk into the store in my sweats and like, heaven forbid, i be chewing gum or something of that nature. There's 12 other women of color who are in similar attire who are Mm. probably also professionals. And so it's just, I don't know how to explain. Like, it's just, there is just a load off in that kind of scenario. Yeah. It's interesting. When you first started talking about going into my makeup,
0: my, my, my thought was in a
1: variety of base tones. Oh, absolutely. No, that's, that's a huge thing. Oh God bless Atlanta for all the shades of brown, all of the shades of brown in all the makeup. It makes me so happy. It is. There is stuff that is at the big kind of main mall in Atlanta that is not even on websites of department stores in those shades. Wow. Because they know they just would lose all their customers if they had four shades of brown and that was it. Right, right. Oh, that's wild.
0: That is wild. I really enjoyed talking to Ozzy today. Join us for part two next week. If you want to listen to past episodes, go to our website, working9tothrive.com, that's with a nine, and follow us on social media.